Genesis 16. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Bur Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Barad. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. This is God's word for us today. Good morning, church. How wonderful it is to hear everyone sing the glorious truths of Scripture. We have a God who sees. A God who sees when we do right. A God who sees when we do wrong. A God who sees when wrong has been done to us. And a God who sees when we have done wrong to others. We've been going through the life of Abraham, looking at a promise that was made to him by God that from a human perspective seemed so outlandish that it compelled he and his wife Sarai to take matters into their own hands in an attempt to help move the promise along to speed it up. Now, it's been 10 years since leaving their homeland, and now they find themselves in Canaan, waiting patiently or not so patiently for the promise. 
spoken to Abram to be fulfilled. Let's look together at the promise to Abram that we find in Genesis chapter 12. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In your seed all the family of the earth shall be blessed. And over those 10 years, on several occasions, the Lord reminds Abram of the promise, a promise that only God could keep. And last week we read as God reminded him of the promise yet again. And he wondered how it was possible that he said, Oh Lord God, what will you give me for I continue childless? You've given me no heir. And God, who is always faithful to his promises, reminds him of the promise we read that Abraham believed. And in that belief, the faith he had in God's promise was counted to Abram as righteous. And yet here we are in chapter 16, verse 1. Ten years have passed, and we read, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. You know, if, if chapter 16 were a play, it could easily be broken into two acts. Act one, Abram and Sarai. Act two, Hagar and God. And so verses one through six, we read about Abram and Sarai and their attempt to speed up God's promise. And I'm certain that there, there isn't one of us who won't be able to identify with what we read here this morning. We see three things that happen. First of all, in verse 1, we see the problem in their eyes. And then in verses 2 through 4, we see the solution in their mind. And then verses 4 through 6, we see the consequences of their actions. And this is where we can really get into trouble. When we do things the way we think, in our eyes, in our minds, in our actions. And then we wonder, I wonder what went wrong. We read in Proverbs 16, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. And in that same proverb, Solomon writes, The heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. It's not that we shouldn't plan, but then we need to stay out of the way and let the Lord direct our steps. We read in the book of Judges that instead of looking to God to be their king, they wanted their own. It was a dark period in Israel's history, marked with the verse, 
everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Which then brings us to the final scene of this drama, Sarai's response, which really is the central point of our text. The God who sees, in verses 7 through 14. And the central point is this. It's a warning. When we deviate from God's promise, we will have problems. Some which can last a lifetime. And so first we begin with Abram and Sarai. With what they see as a problem. The problem in their eyes. Verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. What are they to do? Sarai must have been thinking, why is God taking so long? Doesn't he know how hard this is? It's been 10 years. Where is the promise? When will it be fulfilled? Have you ever been there? I certainly have. Our circumstances can seem to suggest that God doesn't see, that he isn't hearing our cry. Of people's lives, it could just as easily have read, now Laura, Jerry's wife, had overdrawn the checking account. Now Robert, Claire's husband, failed to do what he said he would do. Now Julie the daughter of Mike and Deborah, quit her good-paying job. Now Joseph, the son of James and Samantha, dropped out of college. There are a myriad of other examples that would test our faith. For 10 years, how many times had Abram's word, words run through Sarai's mind, trying to be patient with the reminder God promised God promised. And finally, when she got tired of waiting in the 10th year, wait a minute, she thought, I have an idea. The solution in their mind. What about Hagar, my Egyptian servant? And after all, it is customary in our culture there would be no social objection to Abram sleeping with Hagar. People do it all the time. This way, God's promise can be fulfilled. And so she approaches Abram, her husband, and notice she doesn't ask him what he thinks they should do. She tells him what they should do. Perhaps with the incident in Egypt in mind. And in her words, there is a hint of blaming the Lord for the delay. Look what it says. The Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant Hagar. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram wisely responds, Sarai, we've been talking about this. For 10 years now. We've waited this long. We can wait a little longer. God will be faithful to keep his promise. No. 
That's not what the text says. We know that is not what Abram said. In fact, we have no record of him saying anything. The text simply tells us, and Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. We're going to see in a moment that this isn't the first time we or the reader would have heard this. And so Sarai takes Hagar, her Egyptian servant, gives her to Abram, her, as, uh, her husband, as wife. He sleeps with her, and she conceives. And understandably, from that point forward, it does not go well. It never does when we deviate from God's promises, from his truth. And instead of peace that comes from God's promises, peace that comes from faith and obedience, there's arrogance, there's blame, there's avoidance and retaliation. We see in verses 4 through 6 the consequences of their actions. We read in the latter part of verse 4 when Hagar learns that she is pregnant that she looks at Sarai, her mistress, with contempt. Some versions say despises her. And it's important to note that this word for contempt may, a bit, may be a bit strong in its context. And more likely better translated to mean disrespect and rudeness. A response developing from the maternal pride of Hagar in her new status. Perhaps a sort of pride or arrogance that says, look, I'm with child and you are not. And on the other hand, think about it. It's reasonable to imagine that there's a lot going on with Hagar and what she must have been feeling. An Egyptian servant taken from her homeland, serving this couple in like some sort of property void of feelings. She's told to sleep with someone's husband, and now she's pregnant with his child. And Sarah, no doubt, not appreciating the disrespect from her servant, takes no responsibility for her part. In fact, in Instead, turns to Abram and blames him. Verse 5, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked at me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. Sarah's angry. What right does she have to be angry? We don't know for sure. But could it be that there's some bitterness from the whole say that you're my wife incident in Egypt? And I can't help but wonder how many times that must have come up over the years. And Abram, who should have stopped the whole plan in the first place, instead of repenting, instead of stopping to consider what role may, he may have played, avoids the whole situation. And in verse 6, he says, she's your servant, do to her as you please. It's, it's as if to say, this was your foolish idea, fix it. 
And her way of dealing with it is retaliation. It's treating Hagar so harshly that she runs away. Nothing good came out of deviating from God's promise. In an attempt to speed up the promise of God, Sarai suggests something that even though was culturally acceptable, was not God's plan from the beginning. One man, one wife, one marriage, one line to bless the nations. And rather than Abram leading Sarai to the right decision, he acquiesces. It says he listens to the voice of his wife, and nothing but heartache comes from their solution. Arrogance, blame, avoidance, retaliation. Where have we heard that before? Where would the leaders, uh, the readers at that time have heard that before? Genesis chapter 3. How many times had they heard the story? How many times had they told it to their children? Gather around. The serpent Satan deceives the first woman. The wife of Adam convincing her to eat the fruit of the tree God had forbade, lest they die. We know the story well, and so do they. You will surely not die, said the devil. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. How she took and ate and gave some to Adam, her husband, their eyes both opened. They knew they were naked. They knew good and evil. They hid from God. They tried to avoid him. And men and women, husbands and wives, have been hiding from God ever since. And yet in their sin, in their rejection of God's command, God found them. He found them. And, through, and though there were consequences, he covered their sin, he covered their nakedness with the skins of an animal. Pride. Wanting to be like God, knowing good and evil. And what did they do when confronted with their sin? They blamed. The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit, and I ate. And Eve, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Avoidance, they hid from God. And retaliation through the ages, we've been born enemies of God. Paul describes it as by nature we are born children of wrath. Look at what God said to Adam in Genesis 3. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken 
for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And to Eve, God said this, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Now think with me, who were the first to hear the stories and the accounts in Genesis? The children of Israel who were wanderers in the wilderness for not trusting in the promise of God to give them the land. Men, women, husbands, and wives. Listening to the account of Adam and Eve, of Abram, Sarai, and Hagar. Imagine the conviction as they read or listened and reflected on their own marriages and the dynamics of their own relationships. A vivid reminder to them and to us we must trust God's plan, God's promise for marriage, for procreation. With the awareness of this inherent tension that would exist, for the duration of our time on this earth. There is so much that could be said here, but it would be deviating from the central point of our text. Because while we are compelled from the first verses to consider the clear connection between the tension between Abram and Sarai, which spilled over into Hagar's life, the greater issue and the main point of chapter 16 is that there is a God who sees amidst the tension. He sees it all. The good, the bad, the ugly. We have a God who sees. And I love the contrast we see in verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children knowing that problems ensued. And what we read at this transition point of our text in verse 7, the angel of the Lord found Hagar by a spring of water in the wilderness. I think that's so beautiful. We're getting into the most encouraging part of our study this morning. This contrast reminds me of what we read in Ephesians chapter 2 as Paul writes, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, but God intervened. And being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, steeped in our disobedience, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And so after Sarah treats Hagar harshly, she heads towards Egypt on the way to the sure wilderness. 
and likely rested by a spring of water in the wilderness. And the angel of the Lord, the Lord asked Hagar where she's coming from, where she's going. And she tells him, I'm fleeing from my mistress. And the Lord tells her to return to Sarai, who was mistreating her. And not only to return to her, but to submit to her. And I admit, when I read that, I thought, that doesn't make sense. It seemed perplexing at first, but we'll see the reason behind it in just a moment. And then he says some interesting things about the baby she's carrying in her womb. First, that through the child there would be a multiplication of her offspring so large that they aren't able to be numbered. Then that it will be a son and that she's to name the boy Ishmael. Why Ishmael? Well, the angel of the Lord tells her, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. And the name Ishmael, it literally means God hears. And lastly, he tells Hagar that the boy and the multitude that come through his seed are going to be the bane of existence for God's people. He's going to cause some serious problems. A warning, not only for Hagar, but for Abram and Sarai. When she returns for all the generations, a warning to this day and beyond. When we deviate from God's promise, we will have problems. Some of which can last a lifetime. So look what the angel of the Lord says in verse 12. He shall be a wild donkey of a man. His hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. How would you like that at the big reveal? You pop the balloon. <laughs> you cut the cake. Or as I saw recently, blow colored smoke out of your truck's tailpipe and do whatever it is to reveal the gender. It's a boy! Oh my! Oh! And guess what? He's going to grow to be a wild donkey of a man. <laughs> His hand is going to be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. When we deviate from God's promise, we will have problems, some of which can last. A lifetime. Look at Hagar's response, verse 13. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called Bir Lahai Roy, which means Well of the Living One who sees me. The God who sees and the God who hears. What a wonderful God we have. Don't miss who it is that God sees and hears in our text. An Egyptian servant, pregnant, out of wedlock, prideful, the least of who some might expect. And such were some of us.
And this is the reason the Lord tells her to go back to Sarai. In order to declare the things that were about to take place through Ishmael. One commentator points out that every time they would hear the name Ishmael, God hears, it would be a reminder of the events and their significance. He said, Sarai must have been humbled, reminded every time she heard Ishmael's name. Now, how many of us have been in a similar situation? Perhaps some of you this morning are smack dab in the middle of it. Maybe you're at that fork in the road. You've been waiting and waiting. You've been praying. You've been crying out to God. And in that crying out, the circumstances seem overwhelming. They're too big. Maybe even too big for God. And we forget. We have a God who sees. We have a God who hears. And I want to close this morning by giving you three applications that we can take from our text. First of all, in our marriages, there will be an inherent tension. In our marriages, there will be this inherent tension. It's simply a part of the fall. And the answer is to humbly submit to one another, to pray and to look to Christ who demonstrated what true love looks like. Ephesians tells wives to submit to their husbands as unto the Lord and to respect them. And husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. There is no greater assurance of mutual love and respect than loving one another the way Christ loves us. It is the healthy way to a God-honoring marriage. And for those of you who are single and wanting to be married, with this understanding, you're one step ahead of everyone else. Number two, we mustn't let the culture influence our response to God's promises. No matter how many people are doing it, no matter how many people are justifying it, no matter how intense the persecution might become, because we disagree, we must stay true to God's promises as clearly outlined in his word. And lastly, our God sees and listens to our reflections, even when they are self-imposed. Our God sees and listens to our afflictions, even when they are self-imposed. What's approaching in April? I think April 15th. Tax time not to cast a, a negative light on things. But I still remember the evening of 
April 14th in the mid-1980s, I was doing my taxes. No TurboTax, no computers. It was all on paper, this very thick book that was very difficult to understand. April 14th in the evening, had to be in the mailbox by the time the clock struck 12. It was a rough year for me, for our family, on many fronts. And I procrastinated, and things were looking bleak. We were going to owe money, money that we didn't have. And I remember literally weeping, falling on my knees and crying out to God in my self-imposed affliction. And God found me, and he heard me. And the words, income averaging, popped into my head. I kid you not, I'm not an accountant. I couldn't have even told you. In fact, I'm not even sure I can tell you what it means today. And by the grace and the mercy of God, I got up from my knees. I started reading through that little book. I did what it told me to do, and we got money back. That, my friends, is surely the grace of God. And how many instances do we have in our lives where maybe even things don't quite turn out? It doesn't negate the fact that we have a God who hears. We have a God who sees. And many of us, we look back and we see mistakes that we have made. Some which we may pay for for the rest of our lives. And this is what happens when we deviate from God's promises. But we need not despair. Cry out to God. We have a Savior who intercedes for us. We have a God who sees. We have a God who hears. A God who meets us in our afflictions, a God whose promise will never fail. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. We thank you, Lord, for the precious gift of salvation that you have bestowed upon us by grace, something surely we never deserved. We thank you for your word, O oh God, for the way that it lives and is active and penetrates on our hearts. O oh Lord, we ask that you would strengthen every one of us, Lord, especially those who are waiting anxious, impatient, perhaps even on the verge of making a foolish decision. Oh God, may we glean from the words of Scripture that you will keep your promise because you're a God who sees 
a God who hears, and a God who meets us in our afflictions. It is in Christ's name we pray.